pleasure to introduce Daniel Geary this evening. Um, he's a Mark Piggott Associate Professor of US History at Trinity College Dublin, um, where he's been teaching since 2008. Um, <clears throat> and I mention that because before that he taught at the University of Nottingham, which is where I first met him when he supervised my master's dissertation uh, way back in, in 2007. Um, Dan is a historian, and his research examines the connections between thought, culture, and politics in the 20th century United States. Um, more specifically, he focuses on political ideologies, in particular liberalism and radicalism, ideas about race and ethnicity, the history of social science, and the politics of popular music. His first book came out in 2009 and was entitled Radical Ambition, uh, with University of California Press, um, and it examined the intellectual biography of left-wing sociologist C. Wright Mills. Uh, he's also published in the Journal of American History, De Dallas, and Modern Intellectual History. Um, and what I like about Dan's work, and the reason I thought it was really important to, to get him to come and speak here, is that it, it takes difficult, multifaceted ideas and intellectuals and renders them comprehensible in their historical and political contexts without losing sight of the complexities and contingencies of the thought and culture he's analysing. And he is, I think, um, at the forefront of a renaissance in US intellectual history that's taken place in the last decade or so. Um, and we're really, really lucky to have him here at the Institute of the Americas speaking this evening. So tonight he's going to talk to us about his second book, published earlier this year by the University of Pennsylvania Press, the cover of which is up behind me. I have a copy here to prove it exists, I guess. Um, the title of which is Beyond Civil Rights, The Moynihan Report and Its Legacy. All right. I'm going to uh, stand so I can see you all. Uh, thanks very much, Nick, for that uh, introduction, and, and thanks to Nick and to, to John Bell for uh, inviting me here. It is, uh, you know, it's really appropriate for me to be back in England, you know, talking about this topic because... Um, as you probably get from my accent, I'm an American, even though I have an Irish name and I live in Ireland, I teach Ireland, I'm not Irish. Um, and this is where the project began when I was at the, the University of Nottingham in, in 2008 um, during an uh, archival trip when I thought I was writing a different book. And I came into the Moynihan papers at the Library of Congress, which are the biggest collection of any uh, you know, personal papers at the Library of Congress. And I got into this material about the Moynihan Report and I thought, well, there's been a lot written about the Moynihan Report, a lot said about it, but there's a lot of material here that has never been used. Um, the story, the real story of it, and, and at least based on what I saw, it never been told. And I thought, okay, well, that's the book I'm going to write then. Um, I also think living, you know, for me, at least being an American living overseas, has given me um, really some critical distance to write about this topic. I mean, this report, uh, report, you know, about the officially titled The Negro Family, about African-American families. Uh, you're touching on a variety of you know, uh, issues in the U.S., race, um, issues of the family and gender, uh, poverty. I mean, all very controversial you know, topics. And to be somewhat removed you know, uh, 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 from the situation for me, at least, was a way to get a, a kind of critical distance on the topic, allow me to try to understand all the different perspectives um, and uh, you know, to be... I suppose, uh, less afraid of whatever landmines I might be walking into. <laughs> As it turns out, you know, I, you know, had the book coming, had it come out, um, there had been a few landmines that I've stepped in on, not always the ones that, uh, that I thought that, uh, they were going to be, but anyway. Um, so what I'm going to do today is basically outline the main arguments of, uh, of my book, um, clarify some of the arguments, um, 
in, uh, in light of a few of the, the criticisms that have been made of it, not that I would expect you to necessarily care about any perceived slights I have. Um, and then, uh, but also uh, discuss some of the, the recent invocations of the Millennium Report. That is this year, 2015, or the 50th anniversary. So since my book has been out, um, talk about those and how they, I suppose, fit in with the book's arguments. Now, like I wrote this book to be out in time for the 50th anniversary of the report, and um, you know worked very hard to get out in time. Uh, but even I've been surprised at the kind of uh, extent to which the report has been cited uh, in American, uh, you know, uh, politics this year. Um, so, uh, for example, um, on August 31st of this year, um, on the MSNBC program Morning Joe. Uh, the police commissioner of New York City, Bill Bratton, uh, controversially declared that he had discovered uh, the cause of a recent crime wave in a 50-year-old government report written by Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Um, as he said, quote, uh, talk about being prescient about what was, what was going on uh, in black society in terms of he was right on the money, the disintegration of family, the disintegration of uh, values. Bratton's remarks, which were made really in the context of growing outrage against police brutality uh, and mass incarceration, uh, his remarks seem to attribute black criminality to the flawed family structure and cultural values of African Americans. I think that's what Bratton was uh, implying. Uh, and these remarks are just one indication of the enduring salience of the Moynihan Report. Uh, that is, uh, the 1965 government document uh, officially entitled The Negro Family. Uh, the case for national action. Uh, that document uh, in 1965, Moynihan argued that the damaged family structure of many African-American families, as reflected in high rates of female-headed families, high rates of out-of-wedlock births, uh, that that would hinder efforts to achieve racial equality following the passage of civil rights legislation. Moynihan's writing really in the heart of the, the civil rights uh, era uh, after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, family structure, Moynihan argued, uh, stood at the heart of what he notoriously labeled a tangle of pathology. That's Moynihan's phrase, tangle of pathology that he saw evident in high rates of juvenile delinquency, uh, drug abuse, and poor educational achievement among African Americans. Now, uh, I wrote an entire book about the Moynihan Report and the long-lasting controversy over it, so I probably shouldn't have been surprised, you know, that this document remains uh, controversial. Um, nor should I have been surprised by recent invocations of the report by conservative think tanks, uh, the Heritage Foundation, the Hoover Institute, and the Manhattan Institute, all of which had conferences or symposiums uh, celebrating the report uh, this year, uh, nor by the fact that the, the document was celebrated by journalists of various ideological persuasions from conservative uh, George Will, um, liberal uh, Nicholas Kristof, uh, and perhaps radical uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates. Uh, the thesis of my book basically is that for 50 years, the Moynihan Report has generated debate about the causes of persistent inequality in America. Uh, the report has been a Rorschach test, inviting viewers to see in it uh, whatever they want, uh, as well as a litmus test reflecting deep ideological cleavages. Now, to return to Bratton for a moment. Now, Bratton, he presented his comments as a spontaneous reaction to something he just happened to read over the weekend. Now, what is a police commissioner doing in his free time? I mean, he's just picking up like 50-year-old government reports. Uh, somehow, I, you know, I doubt that. Someone's obviously placed this in his hands. But anyway, that's how he presented it. I just happened to read this report. But his, 
regardless of how he came across it, his remarks fit into a long line of arguments coming out of the Moynihan Report. Uh, a conservative line of argument coming out of the report that, attributed, that attributes inequality and social problems among African Americans to the social and cultural characteristics of African Americans themselves. Uh, namely, as Bratton put it, you know, the cause of a recent crime wave was the disintegration of family, that is the disintegration of family values among African Americans. Um, so, you know, Bratton's in a long line of arguments uh, that, uh, that I, I discuss in the book, the conservative interpretation of uh, this report. In another sense, though, I have to say that this use of the Moynihan Report by Bratton struck me as simply bizarre. I mean, if you're a historian, when you write a book about a subject, you think, you know, the book is pretty much past, you know, it belongs to the past. And here was Bratton, um, you know, taking this report, treating it like it had been written yesterday and explained uh, the problems of uh, today. Um, so in that sense, it helped to clarify me what I'm doing in this book because it's not a book that is primarily, you know, analyzing the Moynihan Report as validity uh, as a... Um, interpretation of African-American families and the variety of other issues it touches on, but rather uh, it aims to treat the document historically, to explain where it came from, uh, why it was controversial, and the different meanings that people have uh, read into it. Um, now, the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, uh, I don't think he's read my book. Uh, probably not. Uh, but he did convey some sense of the Moynihan Report as a historical document uh, when he, uh, in a rare uh, public gesture, publicly rebuked his police commissioner the next day. Uh, de Blasio said, quote, that report is literally half a century old, and I think society has changed a lot. I think there are some assumptions in that report, report that just don't hold today. Um, I think it's a report from another time, uh, de Blasio added. Now, I think part of the context of the, why de Blasio would, would say this um, He's married to an African-American woman, uh, and they have children together, and so I think, you know, uh, this is a per maybe to some extent a, a personal issue for him. Still, this rare public sparring between the police commissioner and the mayor does indicate the passion that this report still, still generates uh, 50 years later. Now, interestingly, though Bratton had hinted at a well-worn conservative interpretation of the report in his initial comments, his subsequent remarks two days later, uh, in the face of criticism from the mayor, uh, as well as criticism from some members of the city council, one member of the city council called the report, the Moynihan Report, uh, racist. Um, Breton, you know, walking his remarks back, trying to explain himself, really change what he said in the first place, uh, he appealed to a different interpretation of the Moynihan Report, one that emphasized the need for government action to redress uh, historical wrongs. Um, so here's what, uh, what Bratton said a few days later. He said, quote, there is no denying in the African-American community there are, that there are strong cultural, strong religious, strong community values. But over time, and this is what the Moynihan Report spoke to, there is no community that has been so stressed over time as the African-American community. 250 years of slavery 150 years of Jim Crow, I don't know where he got that, 150 years of Jim Crow, where did he get that from? I don't know, but that's what he said anyway. 150 years of Jim Crow coming out of Jim Crow, the segregation that spawned the civil rights movement, and at the time the report was written, it was a call to action to assist a community that has been impacted like no other community in our history. 
Uh, and he went on to add, quote, my takeaway on the Moynihan report was he was saying to the United States, we have damaged this community to an extraordinary degree, and as a country, we need to come together to work with them to ensure they get all the benefits of American society. Call to action, that's how I read the report. It's not what he said the first time. Now, by invoking quite different interpretations of the report in the same week, uh, Bratton uh, unwittingly illustrated one of my book's uh, central arguments. That is, that the Moynihan Report was open to multiple ideological uses, uh, the two main ones being uh, attributing persistent inequality to African Americans' flawed familial and cultural values, uh, and secondly, the second interpretation, calling for national action to redress persistent uh, racial inequality. Um, now, when I made the argument that the Moynihan Report produced both of these interpretations, um, and that both are, in fact, um, you know, legitimate readings of the report, that, uh, that you can read the report in these, in these different uh, ways, I broke with most previous histories of the Moynihan Report controversy. Now, most historians said either the Moynihan Report was a conservative document through and through, people who criticized him from the left uh, from the get-go were correct. Um, that explains the controversy. Others, now I think in the majority, have said no. The Moynihan Report was a liberal document. Um, and anybody who saw it as something else, people who saw it as conservative, people who criticized him for not being liberal, they were just wrong. They misunderstood him. Um, James Patterson, historian James Patterson, who's written also a book on the Moynihan Report controversy, said the controversy was a result of, quote, misunderstandings and misrepresentations. Uh, that is not my interpretation. My, my book argues that the report has been open to so many competing interpretations because of its own inconsistencies, it's an, it's an ambiguous document, and uh, its embodiment of a series of contentious assumptions about race, gender, uh, social expertise, uh, and the role of government, all of which came under challenge in the late 1960s and 1970s, pretty much exactly when the report was uh, released. Okay, so I'll go through now some of the some of the uh, basis for this argument. Um, so there we've got uh, Moynihan and the, and the, and the, uh, the document there. Um, Moynihan was writing at the dawn of a new era in American race relations. Landmark legislation in 1964 and 1965, the Civil Rights Act followed by the Voting Rights Act, had ended Jim Crow segregation, uh, had granted formal equality to African Americans, and had discredited overt arguments for white supremacy. But Moynihan's opening sentence warned, um, here we go, quote, the United States is approaching a new crisis in race relations. It's a somewhat surprising thing to say uh, in the spring of 1965, you know, when there's uh, a lot of um, optimism and celebration about uh, uh, the achievement of civil rights legislation. But Moynihan understood uh, that this, what he saw as a crisis, resulted uh, from African-American demands that went, uh, as he put it, quote, beyond civil rights to include the demand for economic equality. Uh, and that's where the title of my book comes from, Beyond Civil Rights. And I think highlighting really the central role debates over the Moynihan Report have played, uh, how central the Moynihan Report has been in debates about African-American equality since the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, so post-civil rights Era. How do you explain racial inequality, persistent racial inequality, despite the achievement of um, civil rights? Now, Moynihan, um, ex he accepted the legitimacy of 
the demands of the civil rights movement for a basic standard of living for all Americans. I think historians have now correctly recognized that the civil rights movement was in some ways somewhat of a misnomer. The, the movement was not just about uh, civil rights, that is to say legal and political rights, but it was about uh, full equality and the movement had a quite ambitious uh, economic agenda, um, social democratic agenda, really, that would provide a basic standard of living, not just for African Americans, but for, uh, for all uh, Americans. Uh, mainstream civil rights organizations uh, you know, pushed, I think, this uh, social democratic uh, agenda. Um, so Moynihan accepted the legitimacy of this demand, but his thesis that attempts to achieve racial equality would be undermined by family instability, first and foremost, family instability would undermine the attempt to achieve economic equality, that thesis produced conflicting notions about how to combat racial inequality. Focus on male unemployment, destructive effects on families. Uh, this is one aspect of the report where Moynihan suggests uh, the reason why there's such, as he sees it, uh, unstable family structure among African Americans has to do with unemployment of African American men and their inability to serve as uh, family breadwinners. Now, that focus on male unemployment's destructive effects on families indicated the need for an activist state uh, to go beyond the limited anti-poverty measures enacted by Lyndon Johnson during his, his War on Poverty, which um, uh, is also part of the context of this report, the War on Poverty having been declared in 1964, uh, and suggested, uh, you know, this line of argument focusing on male unemployment suggested the need to ensure full male employment, uh, jobs for all men, and uh, also a guaranteed annual income. Uh, Moynihan later explained his strategy of appealing to family to win support for white Americans for broader prog programs uh, targeted at achieving um, racial equality. He said, quote, by couching the issue in terms of family, white America could be brought to see the same tired old issues of employment, housing, and discrimination, and such in terms of much greater urgency than they evoke on their own. Moynihan even suggested that uh, conservative Catholics and Protestants uh, might be appealed to in terms of family to support um, liberal social measures that they otherwise uh, would be uh, against. Now, Moynihan's report, written in the, um, finished in, in March 1965, uh, gets the attention of uh, President Lyndon Johnson uh, and shaped Johnson's rhetoric in a very uh, widely noted speech at Howard University in June of 1965, in which Johnson declared, quote, freedom is not enough, uh, suggesting that um, civil rights legislation alone uh, you know, was not, uh, you know, would not be adequate uh, to uh, achieve racial equality or to pay back the nation's debt to African Americans. Um, so there's a rhetorical move that Johnson makes you know, in this speech that's very much based on the report that Moynihan himself helps to write. But in one sense, Moynihan's call for national action was uh, dead on arrival. Uh, I mean, Johnson, you know, the one thing that Moynihan thought uh, in this liberal line of argument would, would most help African-American families would be jobs for African-American men. Um, Moynihan had favored uh, public works programs, uh, the government basically as an employer of, uh, of last resort. But he knew that Johnson opposed this. Uh, Johnson already opposed it to the war on poverty. And so therefore, you know, Moynihan left this proposal out of the report entirely. You know, uh, Moynihan later says, this is why I wrote the report to get Johnson to do this, but he never actually proposes it in the report or anywhere else because he knows Johnson's against it. So in that sense, dead on arrival. Moreover, moreover, I think Moynihan, he undermined his own case for national action in the report by treating family pathology, that's Moynihan's word, pathology, 
treating family pathology not simply as an effect of economic inequality, but also as the primary cause of what he saw as the inability of African-Americans to compete with other groups in American society. That, I think, is a central uh, tension in the report, is whether uh, uh, family uh, pathology, in Moynihan's terms, is an effect of economic inequality or its cause. Um, he's confused about that in the report. Here, Moynihan drew uh, from a different intellectual tradition that conflicted with his calls for full male employment. Um, Moynihan's view of American race relations was profoundly influenced by his role in co-authoring the book Beyond the Melting Pot with uh, Nathan Glazer, uh, the famous Jewish sociologist and the author who, by the way, is most cited in the Moynihan Report. There's more citations of Glazer than anywhere else, anyone else. Uh, this book, uh, published in 1963, quite influential study of uh, uh, ethnic and racial groups in New York City. Um, this book viewed African Americans through the lens of the European immigrant uh, experience. Um, um, significant then that Gla uh, Glazer was uh, descended from Jewish immigrants, uh, Moynihan descended from Irish immigrants, um, you know, to um, uh, to the United States, and they identify as such. They've got uh, a strong ethnic identification. So they viewed African Americans through the lens of that European immigrant experience and suggested as well that ethno-racial groups in the U.S. succeeded or failed economically on the basis of sociological characteristics such as family structure. So, for example, you know, the argument is made that Jews have succeeded uh, you know, as a group. better. Uh, they've succeeded economically because of a strong family structure and strong cultural institutions. African Americans and Puerto Ricans have not succeeded because they lack that same uh, uh, strong uh, familial and community institutions. So here, in Beyond the Melting Pot, family structure is not an effect of economic inequality. It's the cause of economic inequality. Now, Glazer was the one who wrote the chapter on um, African Americans for this book. Uh, not Moynihan. It's Glazer who writes the chapter. Glazer says, problems of family disorganization, crime, juvenile delinquency, and educational achievement could best be met not by government programs, but by private black organizations. These were tasks, uh, Glazer wrote, quote, that conceivably no one but Negroes can do. Um, so Glazer counsels racial self-help. It's up to African Americans to help themselves. Um, no one else can do it. This isn't something the government can do. Uh, Glazer also claimed, however, quote, that Negro communal organization is too weak and insufficient to make much impact on the greater needs of the poor and disorganized part of the community. Um, so there, Glazer suggested both it's necessary for African-Americans to do it themselves, but also that they don't have the resources to do so. Therefore, he's, he's effectively suggesting that the low socioeconomic position of African-Americans was an intractable problem. Now, Glazer supports civil rights. He even supports certain kinds of um, uh, liberal social measures to benefit African-Americans. But I think he also offers in this book a, pow a, a powerful um, rationalization you know, for why African-Americans would remain unequal. That doesn't have to do with, you know, not because they suffer from racism, but because of uh, their uh, cultural institutions. Now, I had the pleasure of interviewing Glazer uh, for this book. Uh, he's maybe about 90 years old, but, uh, but sharp as a tack. Uh, and he was a wonderful person to interview. Sometimes you interview uh, people and they, they just want to defend, you know, their position or they tell you stuff that's actually, you know, you go back to the written record and it's actually wrong or, you know, or they don't say anything new, but Glazer was very forthcoming, very open. 
Um, and I, I sort of put it to him. I said, well, is this what you're arguing? And he said, yeah, that's what I said. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe I was right. But, you know, that's what I argued. So I found that uh, very refreshing that he was willing to own up to, uh, uh, you know, willing to say, um, acknowledge what it is that he was arguing at the time uh, in a way that wasn't defensive. So I um, appreciate that. Now, Moynihan and Glazer, of course, as you probably know, they're not the same, same person. They're different people. Uh, and it's Glazer who wrote the chapter on African Americans. I think Moynihan was, uh, and Glazer told me this, Moynihan was more optimistic about the role of government than was Glazer, which makes sense because, after all, Moynihan was uh, basically a, a politician. Uh, nevertheless, the Moynihan Report adopts pretty much wholesale Glazer's model of, of ethno-racial groups competing with one another and succeeding on the basis of different sociological characteristics, such as family structure. And that model led Moynihan to focus in the report on defects among African Americans themselves, not on the structural constraints of institutional racism. Um, that philosophy was also behind Moynihan's assertion in the report that family structure was the, quote, fundamental source of the weakness of the Negro community. Uh, well, family structure is the fundamental source of that weakness, uh, then perhaps, as Glazer had suggested, uh, the whole problem of African-American inequality could not be effectively addressed by government action, uh, could only be addressed by African-Americans themselves, or perhaps was a problem uh, that was simply uh, insoluble. Now, this central inconsistency of the report, whether family instability was a broader symptom of inequality or its primary cause, meant that, in fact, when the report was released, uh, it's released in... August of uh, 1965, uh, leaked to the press by Moynihan himself, uh, but also probably inevitable that was going to become public once it had been the source of a major presidential address. Uh, once the reports leaked, it was immediately cited by liberals favoring national action and conservatives promoting uh, racial self-help. Um, and here we've got um, two, two folks actually defended Moynihan, um, Martin Luther King and William F. Buckley. I haven't put captions up, but you can, you can probably make out um, which one's King and which one's uh, Buckley. Um, so in a 1966 speech in Chicago, uh, King endorsed Moynihan's, quote, alarming conclusion that the Negro family is crumbling and disintegrating. Uh, King saw the report as offering, quote, an opportunity to deal fully rather than haphazardly with the problem as a whole, to see it as a social catastrophe and meet it as other disasters are met with the adequacy of resources. So King, and there were others as well, other civil rights leaders like Whitney Young, um, uh, also the Democratic Socialist, Michael Harrington, who really saw the report as using the issue of family uh, to call attention for, for the need for broader social democratic measures that would especially benefit um, African uh, Americans. Um, Buckley, on the other hand, drew more or less the opposite conclusion. Uh, Buckley was one of the first to see the conservative uses of Moynihan's ideas. Um, Buckley ran for mayor in 1965 in New York City, and although Buckley was from quite a wealthy kind of patrician family, he found that he was drawing support from working class white ethnics um, who, who uh, this is sort of an early, um, well, I mean, this has been going on actually for decades in American politics, but early post-civil rights as, uh, um, um, example of white backlash. Uh, where, where many working class white ethics in New York City uh, believed that African Americans and Puerto Ricans were getting disproportionate uh, aid uh, from the government and they were being basically forgotten, left behind. And Buckley found that he could eff effectively appeal to these uh, groups. 
Um, he drew on Glazer and Moynihan uh, in, during his campaign, specifically drew on the, uh, their work to deny white responsibility for racial minorities' low economic positions. In an October 1965 speech citing Beyond the Melting Pot, Buckley asserted, quote, the situation in Harlem is dire and dreadful, and the moment has come when the government's competence in these matters having been largely exhausted, leaders of the Negro people must take on the responsibility of helping their own people and dispelling the illusion that what is left to do is primarily up to the white man to do. Um, it's kind of incredible because Buckley was, uh, he was an opponent of uh, civil rights, a published Southern segregationist in his, ma in his magazine, The National Review. And here in 1965, he's saying, white people have done enough. Well, he didn't, he didn't do anything, but uh, uh, you know, the way that he says it, it makes it seem like uh, you know, he's been some uh, you know, uh, great friend to African Americans, a great friend of the cause of, of racial equality, not at all. But he has found a very effective sort of post-civil rights uh, rationalization of uh, why government shouldn't do anything more, I suppose. Now, when the New York Times uh, chastised Buckley, the New York Times, a sort of liberal newspaper, said Buckley was appealing to, quote, racism and bigotry. Well, what did Buckley say? He said, the New York Times is hypocritical. You've been praising Glazer and Moynihan, you know, the last couple of years for making these same arguments. I'm only saying what Glazer and Moynihan are saying. Now, for his part, Moynihan um, reportedly declared in a radio interview, quote, Everything Mr. Buckley has said on the Negro question is a plagiarism taken straight out of my book, Beyond the Melting Pot. <laughs> so uh, Buckley, you know, on one hand, does not disavow the support that Buckley gives to him. And to me, I think this is quite, uh, quite telling. I mean, um, you know, those historians like Patterson and, and others who say, you know, Moynihan was a liberal, his intentions were liberal. Well, if Buckley is using his report quite explicitly, you know, to argue for racial self-help, and Moynihan supports not racial self-help, but, uh, but government action, why doesn't Moynihan, you know, stand up and say, you know, Buckley believes I say this, but actually I mean something completely differently. This is, this is not what the report says. It's not what Buckley says. Actually, what, what Moynihan says is, you know, I'm glad, I'm so glad that Buckley supports me. You know, he's glad that Martin Luther King supports him too, but uh, I think this suggests, you know, uh, that Moynihan is, uh, is a politician, um, you know, whose uh, the ambiguity of the report is functional for him. It allows him to get sort of a claim across the ideological spectrum. Um, you know, whether it's a conscious strategy he's pursuing or not, you know, he's happy to take um, a claim for anyone who would give it to him. Now, these, of course, are supporters of the, of the report, but the, the thing that made the report a uh, historic document was the fact that it was uh, such, so widely uh, criticized. Uh, the main criticism of the book, uh, or of the report at the time, was uh, that it was blame, that it blamed the victim. Now, this phrase actually comes from the Moynihan Report Conference. It's used in many other contexts uh, today, uh, but it's first that that phrase is first used by William Ryan, uh, who was Moynihan's most influential critic. Ryan was a, a white uh, civil rights activist from Boston. Uh, what did Ryan mean when he said Moynihan blamed the victim? Now, Ryan was not. Um, Sometimes uh, this criticism of Moynihan has been unfairly rendered in, in a lot of the books. I mean, Ryan understood that Moynihan traced the historical roots of uh, the problems that he saw among African Americans. Ryan understood that Moynihan talked about slavery, that he talked about Jim Crow discrimination, unemployment, and all the rest of it. But what Ryan thought was that by stressing the internal characteristics of African Americans, rather than systemic racism, uh, and moreover by focusing on the past rather than on continuing institutional racism. 
um, that Moynihan was placing the blame, the responsibility on African Americans. So uh, Ryan said Moynihan was copying a plea that he was uh, basically pleading guilty to slavery, Jim Crow, in order to escape uh, uh, the charge of present-day racism. And Ryan, being a, a local activist in, in Boston, you know, a place that uh, obviously wasn't in the South, it's not Jim Crow, I mean, Ryan was well aware of how racism functioned in all the city institutions, uh, you know, in uh, neighborhood segregation and, and education um, and employment, a variety of ways in which racism was written into the everyday fabric of Boston. You know, so when Moynihan comes along and says, well, the real problem with African Americans is they have these uh, problems with their families that are the result of historic racism, um, you know, Ryan is sort of like, what are you talking about? You know, can't we fix the, you know, the pres present day racism that still exists? Now, regardless of what you think of Ryan's art, uh, the art validity of Ryan's argument, that, that's what he was um, saying. It wasn't a simple misreading of, uh, of the report. Now, uh, there were many others who also criticized the, the report, many building off of, uh, of Ryan. And uh, ultimately, the, the Johnson administration quite quickly dis had disowned the report basically by uh, November of um, 1960, 1965, that uh, especially the, um, let's say, the more militant wing of the, of the civil rights movement, um, as well as certain Protestant organizations, uh, really pushed uh, criticism of the report. Uh, and they effectively get Johnson to say, I think Johnson is reported to have said to his staff, you know, what did, you, what did you boys get me into, uh, essentially? How did you get me into this problem? Um, and let's not talk about this anymore. Now, Moynihan's report, I think, received such diverse and heated reactions, not only because of confusion over whether it called for national action or blame the victim, but also because the report articulated assumptions that had been widely shared among early 1960s liberals, but that came under intense challenge just around the time of the report's release. So uh, at the time, in the early 1960s, when Moynihan wrote the report, he thought he was you know, uh, articulating in some ways consensual uh, values. Uh, most liberals believed in the government's ability to alleviate economic inequality without reforming corporate capitalism, in the cultural assimilation of ethno-racial uh, minorities, in the desirability of male-headed families, uh, and the, in the efficacy of social engineering by experts and government uh, officials. The combustibility of Moynihan's assumptions about race, gender, and government was most clear in responses to the report's most concrete policy for African-American advancement. Now, famously, the report did not include policy proposals, although Moynihan did include them in other documents that weren't, uh, weren't public. Uh, but if you read the report, the most concrete proposal that it does have is to recruit more black men into the military. That's uh, Moynihan's idea. Now, in some sense, we can understand why this is a liberal proposal, because um, it provides jobs to uh, male, male breadwinners um, that, in Moynihan's view, would stabilize African-American families and communities. And also, this is something that the government could do without any legislation. You know, it could just, uh, the military being the largest, well, uh, you know, largest public employer in, in the nation could simply recruit more African-Americans uh, <coughs> uh, into it. This proposal also, however, reflected a belief that success in American society required middle-class virtues that were presumed lacking among African Americans. In the Army, Moynihan alleged black men would learn, quote, discipline. This proposal also reflected Moynihan's belief that African American men suffered from a, quote, 
matriarchal culture. And that's Moynihan's word, matriarchal. He sees African-American families, communities, uh, as uh, you know, African-American women having disproportionate power in their families, in their communities. So to Moynihan, the military would provide African-American men with, quote, an utterly masculine world, a world away from women, a world run by strong men of unquestioned authority. This suggestion, advanced uh, during the rapid escalation of the Vietnam War, met opposition from many fronts. Uh, many black power advocates rejected military service as participation in American imperialism. Uh, men involved in the anti-war and countercultural movements rejected Moynihan's equation of masculinity with uh, submission to hierarchical discipline. And of course, feminists viewed the plan as a brief for patriarchy. Uh, one feminist mocked Moynihan for assuming, quote, women are so terrible that it's a fantastic relief to get away from them. Never mind that the military service is experiencing explosive racial problems, it's still better than being around women. Now, the Moynihan Report's uh, commitment, by the way, to patriarchal families uh, is central to its meaning. Uh, and it's, I think, a meaning that those who seek to revive the report today in the context of a vast, vastly changed family norms should have to address. Um, now, conservative supporters of the Moynihan Report often, this is one of the things they like about it, quite openly, is you know, it's, it's uh, support for patriarchal families. Uh, liberal supporters of the Moynihan Report, of which there are, are many, uh, often sweep this issue under the rug. Um, uh, but I think it's something that if someone wants to defend the Moynihan Report, they should uh, take a position on the fact that this report defends patriarchal families, and how can you, you know, if you're defending this report, do you want to, you know, is that the family model that you prefer, or do you think that uh, somehow the report can be rescued from these um, sexist assumptions? I don't think it can be, but, uh, you know, this is something people should have to address as we're going to talk about the report, and often they don't. But I also think the historical point here is the fact that the Moynihan Report touched on so many different issues, you know, all the issues that come into this sort of proposal, for example, for recruiting African-American men into the military. That's one of the reasons why it became such a powerful symbol and why it's still uh, talked about uh, today. The report asked a central question about why African-Americans remain unequal despite the achievement of, of civil rights, but it embedded that question and its answer to that question in broader ideas about gender, poverty, the role of government, and other things. And in my view, racial discourse is always embedded in such broader ideas. It never occurs in a, in a sole form. It's always embedded with these other kinds of ideas about society. Um, and that's why I was, I was surprised when I was recently criticized for ignoring the class dimensions of the, of the Moynihan Report uh, by the scholar Tori Reed in an article that uh, intriguingly juxtaposes the 50th anniversary of the Moynihan Report with the 10th anniversary of Hurricane uh, Katrina. Uh, now, Reed claims that I criticized Moynihan solely for his racial insensitivity, uh, but missed the ways that Moynihan naturalized the capitalist marketplace, even while advocating liberal reforms. So, uh, not that anyone here would care about any dispute between myself and Reed, but I just want to clarify here that when I talk about the report uh, uh, being uh, a, a way in which people talked about inequality, I don't mean solely racial inequality. I mean all forms of uh, inequality in uh, American society. And actually what makes the report even more complex that it is often, it not only has it been used to rationalize inequality, at times it has been used to challenge certain forms of, of equality while naturalizing others. 
So for example, Moynihan's central preoccupation of providing jobs for African-American men so they could serve as family patriarchs is a certain kind of challenge to racial inequality, maybe even class inequality, uh, but it's one that reinforces uh, gender inequality, of course. Now, I can't share all of my ideas in the book with you uh, today, and I am eager to you know, get your, your comments and your questions. Uh, but I hope I've convinced you at least that the Millennium Report has a complex history that belies its use as a simple talking point for the left or for the right, which is how it often appears in public discussion in the U.S. today. And I'm going to conclude by discussing my own views of the report in contemporary political debate. Now, I didn't come to this project with a personal investment in the Moynihan Report, meaning one thing or another. I mean, as I told you before, I came in as you know, often historians do, it's an arch archival find uh, you know, uh, for me. So I wasn't, it's not that I didn't have ideas about the issues the report raised or the history in which it was involved, of course I did, uh, but I just mean it didn't matter to me whether you saw the report as liberal or conservative. I, didn't, I wasn't invested in it meaning one thing or another. Most people have come to it, have been, uh, but I wasn't trying to claim the report from one contemporary view or another. Um, and, um, you know, in that sense, um, I was just uh, uh, giving uh, a talk about the book in Paris the, the other week, uh, and there was a commenter, and she said, basically, your, your book is a self-destructing object. And <laughs> um, <laughs> other, what she meant by that was that it, the book is about the Moynihan Report, but it based, the argument of it is sort of like, uh, this book, this report should no longer be discussed, like it's no longer relevant, it's, it's just passed. Um, you know, so by the time you get to the end of the book, then maybe the contemporary uh, relevance of the report. I would like to think that the way we talk about, uh, you know, race and these other issues in the U.S. is still important, and the, my book could talk about that. But I would be happy, actually, if people would stop referring to the Moynihan Report as a jumping-off point for discussing any of these issues. Uh, when I, and I, you know, when I, when I was about midway through my research in the project, I went to the Lyndon Johnson Library, and the archivist said to me, he said, oh, the Moynihan Report, that thing will never die. Uh, <laughs> And I said, I'm going to kill it. Um, now, I, I, don't think, I don't think I've succeeded, unfortunately, but, but that was my aim anyway. Um, but I do feel a responsibility to engage the current discussion on the report and draw, and draw lessons that my history uh, has, because if historians don't do this kind of thing, then who will? Um, the lessons I draw are drawn for those like myself, uh, who, whose political values are the, are the values of the left, uh, and people who believe that American or indeed world society was truly committed to equality, that, it would, that this would require a massive uh, redistribution of resources. I like to think people with different political view, values might draw different lessons from my history, but anyway, that's, uh, that's my own values and where I'm coming from. Um, the work on my book basically led me to conclude that liberals who have defended the Moynihan Report have, have erred. Um, um, for example, there's this guy, William Julius Wilson, uh, very well-known African-American sociologist influenced uh, President Obama, among, uh, among others. Um, and Wilson has, uh, ever since the 1980s, he's, he's really been a major defender of the Moynihan Report, sought to revive the report. Wilson provides a, a liberal, even social democratic analysis of, uh, of American society and, and the explanation for racial inequality. He tries to claim Moyn the Moynihan Report as this sort of liberal social democratic uh, document. But I think that this effort is mistaken because I think the report has proven so useful to conservatives um, and is so fundamentally ambiguous and has so many problems that Wilson doesn't address, you know, uh, for example, 
its patriarchal uh, values. So as I write in the book, the, uh, the Monument Report embodies not only the ambitions of 1960s liberalism, but also uh, all of its shortcomings. Uh, at its best, uh, the, re the report called for national action to ensure social and economic equality for African Americans, not just the legal equality that had been ostensibly granted during the civil rights movement. But at its worst, the report conflated racial equality with patriarchy and encouraged Americans to focus on African Americans' cultural traits rather than on political economy. Despite Moynihan's liberal intentions, the report directed attention toward family structure as the primary cause of inequality instead of issues such as work, taxes, housing, and education that, in my view, offer much better explanations. Now, I do say in my book that the report should be neither celebrated uh, nor condemned. Um, but since the book's published, I think I've gone even, you know, a little bit um, more critical even of the, uh, of the report because I've seen just how effectively this, the report is still being used by conservatives um, in ways that many liberal supporters of, of the report seem to, to overlook. Uh, now, Moynihan and his supporters love to talk about how the left attacked him, but somehow they failed to denounce, as I suggested before, conservatives who use the report to uh, seemingly opposite ends. So regardless of Moynihan's intentions, which were maybe equivocal in any case, his report, I think, has become a, a kind of a Frankenstein's monster uh, that has primarily aided uh, the right, maybe written from a liberal perspective, but no longer um, serving one. So I basically deduced that if we want to talk about the main reasons why African-American inequalities persist, the left would be best off uh, ignoring the report altogether. Uh, but then um, there was this, this uh, article came out in October by uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, and I was happy to, uh, for, the, uh, for this issue, the Atlantic asked me to do an annotated version of the Moynihan Report for its website. So if you want to read the report, uh, you know, you can go to the Atlantic website. Uh, my annotations are there to uh, hopefully uh, guide you through it. Um, now this uh, cover story by Coates, who, who obviously is, uh, you know, emerged uh, this year as really, I suppose, the leading um, African American intellectual in the United States, um, uses the Moynihan Report to frame uh, broader arguments about its, its main topic, the black family in the age of, of mass incarceration. Uh, Coates uses the report to illustrate mass incarceration, both as seeing mass incarceration as the result of the failure to take actions in Moynihan's time. That's sort of one argument that. Um, you know, the problems that Moynihan addressed could have been addressed through social democratic measures, but it wasn't, so therefore, you know, they needed another solution, and Coates' view that was mass incarceration. Uh, Coates also talks, I think, effectively about the devastating long-term effects on African-American families and communities of mass incarceration, effects that he analogizes to those Moynihan discussed as resulting from slavery and Jim Crow. Now, I think Coates is absolutely wrong in assuming that the Moynihan Report was an unambiguous case for national action. Weirdly, uh, Coates um, you know, uh, sees this report as, as an unambiguous, uh, a liberal, perhaps even radical um, document. Uh, but Coates does recognize the report's limitations in terms of its commitment to patriarchy. And I think he makes effective use of the report to shed new light on a major issue in our own time. Uh, and unlike uh, Police Commissioner Bratton, who picked up, picked up the report as explaining uh, current events uh, as if nothing had changed in 50 years, uh, Coates engages the report in a way that fully recognizes that it's a historical document. Uh, in fact, he basically uses the, uses the report as a historical marker to comprehend the vast expansion of mass incarceration in the 50 years since Moynihan wrote his report. 
that to me was a pleasant surprise. I mean, I didn't really think by the time it came to the report that such an event of use could be made to the Moynihan report. Uh, by the time I finished my book, I became so tired of the same arguments being made over and over again. <laughs> um, someone asked me, well, why in the book, why do you stop your, the book in the, in the 1970s? Because the, the controversy continued over 50 years, and I've got an epilogue where I sort of take it up to the present, but in a, only a few pages. And I, I said, well, I would, you know, for me to go, you know, to, search, to, to trace the same arguments being made over and over again, you know, over three more decades, would have been tedious both for myself and for the reader. So, uh, you know, so it was remarkable to me that, that really someone could make such an inventive and public use of the Moynihan Report as, uh, as Coates did. So I'll modify my sort of cautionary lesson and say that if people are go going to use the report in contemporary discourse, they should do it the way Coates does, um, even though I don't fully agree with uh, his arguments, but they should do it the way he does it, with the full sense of the Moynihan Report as a historical document. Um, only if we recognize the how the report was a product of its time can we effectively use it to understand our own time. Thank you.